by God's grace, we get to continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we finally moved on past the first account that Luke writes in his Gospel, the story of Zechariah and the announcement to him of the, the forerunner who's going to run before the Messiah, who we uh, will later know as John the Baptist, although in this text he's introduced to us as John. And now uh, we're going to get to what the real Gospel and really all the Gospels are about. So the main character in all the Gospels, if you're familiar with Scripture, you'll know is Jesus Christ. And as soon as he shows up on the scene, the whole story becomes about him. He has this gravity and this weight to him, where people follow him and people reject him, and he travels through all the world. And eventually he is killed and crucified and then resurrected from the dead. And all of the Gospels try to seek uh, to take a look at this story from all different kinds of angles. They have different eyewitnesses, different events that occur, but all of the Gospels are talking about this one man, Jesus Christ. And in a few of these Gospels, we get uh, this announcement of the angel Gabriel to Mary about the birth of Jesus as it is foretold. Uh, in this case, we have Gabriel, the angel who we had just seen show up to Zechariah in the temple, who's going to be responsible for carrying forward this message of salvation. And in the first few lines of this text, uh, you get not only the angel Gabriel, but also who he is coming to. It's going to set the context for us. So as in the previous story, we saw uh, the context of uh, Herod, the wicked ruler who's ruling over uh, Nazareth and who's really ruling over all of Judea. We have Zechariah, the righteous priest, and his wife, Elizabeth. In this story, we're going to get a similar contextual setting that's going to help us to parallel these stories back to one another. The reason, really in the whole first chapter of Luke, that we get the interplay between Jesus and John the Baptist and their stories overlapping is because we're meant to kind of compare and contrast these narratives to see both the parallels, the similarities, as well as the differences in these texts. So as we're moving through that passage uh, this evening, we're going to take a look at some of those parallels as they play out. So the context starts off like this in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So here is the context for the scene. We have the angels showing up to a little town called Nazareth. Here it says uh, a city of Galilee named Nazareth. In the Greek language, there's not really a good word for anything larger or smaller than a city. They have one word which refers to any kind of village, dwelling, or establishment. So calling Nazareth a city is really a generous estimation. Uh, it's really more of a village. It's more of a, a drive-through town. Uh, it's off the main Roman highway, so it's really in Gentile territory, uh, really not much part of the land of Judea. And Nazareth is a place that is really by the Jewish people considered to be uh, part of uh, the Judea empire, but not really, it's really more of a Gentile region, a Gentile land, because it really is uh, intersecting with uh, the Romans and what they did. They traveled on the highway right past Nazareth. And as we're going to see in a moment, that actually plays to the detriment of Jesus uh, in his later life and in his later ministry, uh, this, uh, things are said about him like, can a prophet actually come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so this is actually not a good thing, but God is going to take the foolish things of the world uh, to shame the wise. And he's going to use Nazareth as his place to launch out his son, the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, uh, verse 2, we get uh, the statement that the person who's going to come and who's going to atone for the sins of the world, that he's going to have no form or likeness that we're going to recognize him or think much of him. He's going to come, in this case, he's going to be announced to a peasant girl who's of the lineage of David, although in this case she is a peasant. The line of David is no longer in the throne, right? We have 
not even a Jewish person who's sitting over king of Judea. They're under Roman occupation. And so the house of David is long forgotten. They're really, they still exist, but they don't have any kind of power or authority to swing around. And so uh, she is a young woman. She's a peasant. And nothing really is said about her besides that. When we learned about Zechariah and Elizabeth, we learned about their righteousness, that they walked blamelessly before the Lord. But when we come to Mary, we don't get any such account. In fact, there's really not a whole lot in here about Mary. She is not the focus of this text of scripture. She's not the focus. She is the person to who the angel is speaking. She is the agent through who God is going to work to produce his Messiah, his offspring into the world. But it's not about her. And as we look through this passage, we're going to see the overwhelming truth of the passage is that Mary is a servant of God. She is a tool in the hands of our God, but she is not anything to be magnified or glorified as a tool or as an agent. No more than Moses was, no more than Zechariah was, no more than Elizabeth was. They are all faithful servants of the Lord. And Mary is even uh, less so acclaimed in scripture because uh, as we saw, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're called righteous and blameless. But Mary gets not not even such an accolade. She is just here, a virgin, which is the only descriptor we have of her. And then the other uh, contextual factor we get, not only is she in Nazareth, not only is she a virgin, but she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. And this Joseph is of the house of David. And that's really all we get about her. She's a virgin, she's betrothed, and this is the scene that is set for the angel to come. And so then in verse 28, we see the angel arriving He came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So here the angel shows up to Mary. And just like when he shows up to Zechariah, the response is fear. And we looked at this previously when we saw the angel appear. The response throughout all of scripture, the response throughout all of the times that angels show up to humans, the response is fear. And in the Greek text, this word that they use that she, she is uh, greatly troubled is actually an elevated state of fear, even more so than the descriptor that's used of Zechariah, that she is greatly afraid. She is filled with all kinds of fear. And that is right because Zechariah was in the temple. He's a priest. So even though he's afraid of the angel, he at least has his bearings around him. It's a context in which he might have expected a divine encounter. She is nowhere close to the temple. In fact, she's in a village called Nazareth that is on the offshoot of a Roman highway. She's nowhere close to where the Jewish people believed God would walk around on the earth. So when an angel shows up to her, not only is she confused, she is greatly troubled and she is filled with fear. She's filled with fear. And here the angel seeks to calm her spirit. Uh, First he says to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. You might have heard this in other places Uh, as Hail Mary, full of grace. That is how uh, a prayer starts off. And that is a translation out of what we call the Latin Vulgate, which is a text, uh, it's an early translation of scripture. And in the Latin, uh, greeting Hail Mary, full of grace, is here we have greetings, O favored one. And the English text here is probably a more accurate translation of the Greek if you go straight across from Greek to English, because the original language carries just a, a normal greeting. Hail Mary is just greetings Mary. That's how people talk to one another. That is how she is addressed. So it is not an exonerated title. It is not something to be made much of. The angel is just greeting Mary. And he says, you are favored. Now the distortion of this text would say that Mary is not favored, but that she bears in herself favor, that she is herself 
filled with favor. But she is not anyone who is uniquely filled with favor any more than any other individual is filled with favor. She is the recipient of God's favor, not the dispenser of favor. She is the one who receives the favor of God. She is favored by God, but she in herself is not of any significance. And then we move through the text. It says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And so in Mary's confusion, the angel is going to clarify for her why he's there and what he's to do. You remember every time an angel shows up, people are concerned that they're about to be greatly judged. That is the Jewish teaching. The Jewish understanding is when the the supernatural comes to earth, that the Messiah and the judge of all the earth is coming quickly behind him. In Judges, when an angel shows up uh, to Samson's parents, uh, we see that the, the father of Samson is so greatly troubled by this that he thinks that they are surely going to die upon the angel leaving. And so she is trying to discern what kind of greeting this might be. And the angel in verse 30 is going to clarify for her. And he says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And then he's going to get into really the meat of this passage here. And we're going to see the child to be promised that is going to be announced here. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That section that I've just read there, uh, verse 30, really through verse 33, we're going to put that under the heading of the promised child. So the first movement in this text, the angel shows up to Mary and we have some narrative happening and then we have the promised child. The child is going to be announced. And this child is significant in every way and in so many ways that uh, we really have to uh, ignore a lot of things in order to move through the duration of this passage. But we have the promised child. And there's a few things that the text says about this child. And if we will ignore what we know about the Gospels, we're just going to move through this in logical fashion here. It says, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. That is the first thing that is said about Jesus, that he will be great. Now, if you remember in the previous text, when we're talking about John the Baptist, it says he will be great before the Lord. There is a qualifying statement to John the Baptist's greatness, which is that he will be great before the Lord which means John the Baptist is subject, his greatness is subject to the Lord's judgment of his action, of his service, of his fulfillment of his mission. But this son who's promised to marry is not great before the Lord. He's great, no qualifier. The Greek there is megas. He is great. There's no qualifying statement needed. There's only one other individual in scripture who's described as megas, great, with no qualifying statements in the Old Testament. That is the God of the Jewish people, Yahweh. He is great. He needs no qualifier. People who are great before the Lord are subject to his judgment and his approval. But this child is great. No qualifying statement. He does not need to be great before the Lord for he he is the Lord. He is great. No qualifier. And he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Son of the Most High is one of the the common references that Jesus says about himself. He says he is the Son 
of the Most High when Pontius Pilate questions him at his trial before his execution. He says, is it really true that you are the Son of God? And he says, as you have said, it is so. Jesus says this about himself, the Son of the Most High. The most common way that people address Jesus in the Gospels throughout, he is affirmed by himself as the Son of the Most High. He is called by his disciples, the Son of the Most High. He is called by Satan, the Son of the Most High. And more importantly, he's called by demons, the Son of the Most High. You see, when he goes to cast out demons, they say, truly, you are the Holy One of God, the Son of the Most High, and he silences them and casts them out. He is professed by everyone, all people declare him to be the Son of the Most High. This angel, this servant of God, declares him to be the Son of the Most High, as well as the demons, those fallen angels. They cannot help but declare him as well to be the Son of the Most High God. And he is great, the Son of the Most High. If you'll flip with me to Acts chapter 16, verse 17, you're going to get one such statement about a demon-possessed girl. Acts chapter 16, verse 17. Paul and Silas are in prison, and they're going to a place, and they, they meet a slave girl, and this is actually how they're going to end up in prison in just a moment. Acts chapter 16, verse 17, and as they're going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by her fortune telling. So she is a demon-possessed girl. And in verse 17, she follows Paul and us. This is Paul and Luke, by the way. She follows Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Jesus is called the Son of the Most High God, which is different than being a servant of the Most High God. Paul and Silas and Luke are referred to as servants of the Most High God, but the sonship uniquely belongs to this child whose name is Jesus. He is considered to be the son of the Most High God. This is a very unique reference in Scripture to the deity of Christ. Often, people will claim all kinds of crazy things about Jesus, like he never claimed to be God or that people really didn't believe him to be God. This was something the early church made up after his death and his resurrection. But Paul, in his introduction to the Romans, he says, and he through his resurrection, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is uniquely the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. The Most High was the way in which the Jews would refer to their God, Yahweh. In fact, it is a common substitute for his name in the Old Testament. They refer to him as the Most High God. He is uniquely in that place. Because remember, they served in a pagan culture, in a society where there were many gods. There were many people to worship. There were many deities to follow. So Yahweh is distinguished as unique as being not only God, but he is the most high God, the one who is unique and above every other God. And Jesus is the son of this most high God. So not only will he be called great, not only will he be called son of the most high, but then we get some interesting revelation about who he is to be. And this is really where some prophecy gets to kick into place. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, this is interesting. He's the son of the Most High God, but he also has a father who is David. And here's an interesting way in which we start to understand 
what's called the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which is that he has a divine nature and he has a human nature. And not only does he have a heavenly father, but he has an earthly father. He is descendant of the lineage of David. And so how can this be that he will uh, have the throne of his father, David, but he is also the son of the Most High God? Well, to his divine nature, God is his father. Jesus, in his divine nature, has God as father. But as to his earthly nature, as to his human nature, he has David. He is of the lineage of David. And that is through one of two ways. One, it is through the lineage of Mary, who in Luke chapter 3, at the end of Luke chapter 3, we see her lineage followed up all the way through the Davidic line. But some will dispute that, and they will say this is really just Joseph's lineage as well. And if that's the case, then we have Joseph's lineage twice in two different places in Scripture, in which case Jesus is the adopted son of Joseph, and as an adopted son of Joseph, carries with him all the benefits of being the descendant of Joseph, and therefore the descendant through the lineage of David. In either case, his earthly heritage, his earthly parents, come from the line and the lineage of David. And so as to his heavenly father, he is the son of the Most High, and as to his earthly father, he can trace his lineage all the way back to David. Now the question is, why is that important? Why does it matter that he is going to uh, follow in and get the throne of his father David? Well, there's a prophecy in 2 Samuel. If you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to find that prophecy that is fulfilled in Jesus. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we will be here in verse 11 of that text. And it starts halfway through verse 11. It says, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In verse 14, he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Throughout salvation history, we have these unique movements, these unique covenants that God makes with his people. You have it first to Adam in the Garden of Eden. He makes the covenant of works. He says, don't eat uh, of any, uh, you can have any of the trees except for this one. Don't eat of this one lest you shall die. This is the initial covenant. Be faithful and you will not perish, but eat of that tree and you are deserving of death. And as we know, Adam and Eve violate that first covenant. And then we have the fall of people. And then we have this character named Noah who God makes a unique covenant with, that he's going to purge the whole earth of all the sinners, and he's going to preserve Noah and his family. Noah has to do nothing, just be faithful to God. He has to build the ark, and God will preserve Noah and his family and crush the rest of the earth by water. And then after Noah's family raises up and multiplies, then we see the people, as they always do, fall back into wickedness, back into sin. And then we meet in Genesis 15, Abraham, who we've taken a look at his covenant in weeks past 
where he meets with the Lord, the Lord says, I will give you an offspring forever and ever and ever. And you won't be able to count all the children that you have. And he makes this promise with Abraham. And he makes the promise not by Abraham's name and his name, but by his name and his own name. And on this ground, the promise to Abraham is established. And then the people are sold into slavery in Egypt through Joseph. And then they're brought into Egypt. And they prosper there for a while until they have a Pharaoh who forgets God and forgets Joseph. And then they are kept and oppressed in slavery for 400 years. And then after 400 years, God raises up his servant Moses and leads the people out of Egypt through the Exodus and into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he makes another covenant with his people. And this covenant in Exodus chapter 20 has the covenant that has the Ten Commandments and the the law of sacrificial system of offerings. And we call this the, the covenant that he makes with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. And this is the one where he says that eventually he will raise up the people of Israel and he will preserve them forever. And all they need to do is they need to raise their children up in these commandments. And they need to teach these commandments to their children and they need to be faithful to their God and bind it on their head and on their hearts and to follow in his statutes forever. And of course, they walk away from that in the time of the judges. And then as the judges are brought to an end, God raises up for them a king, first Saul who falls away. And then he raises up his king for the people of Israel, David. And when David's kingship is established here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a unique covenant with David where he says, not only shall this Messiah who I'm going to send at the end of days, not only will he be of the offspring of Abraham through Isaac and through Jacob, not only will he be an Israelite, but he will also be of the tribe of David. He will be through David's line. And this is the child that we hear about in Jesus. So it's important that Jesus is of the descendants of David because the child, the promised Messiah, was expected by the Jewish people to come through the lineage of David, which is the kingdom line of Israel. Because God, first and foremost, sends his son not only to be the savior of the people of Israel, but first and foremost to be the king over the Israelites. He is going to be the good king, the one who reigns perfectly. Because every king that they're going to raise up is going to fall short of God in some way. He's going to violate God's law, or he's going to disappoint, or he's going to take a wife that's not supposed to belong to him. Every king is going to fall short. And as that time goes on, the kings fall short in a greater and more uh, depraved way over and over and over again. And eventually, there's no more kings, and the, the Israelites are brought into exile. And then after 400 years in exile, in a Roman occupation, the angel shows up to Mary, and he says, there is going to come a king through the line of David, through you, who's going to be the king that was always promised of God. This king would be of the offshoot of David, and he will rule over the house of David. He is the Davidic ruler. In Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, we saw that they will seek the Lord their God and David their king at the end of days. And that is not to mean that David is going to be reincarnate, just as we know that Elijah is not reincarnate, but they come in the type and the pattern of King David, just as John the Baptist comes in the type and the power of Elijah. So here is the expected child, the expected king. And so the angel, by declaring that this child would be the offshoot of David and would reign, and it says here, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's the same as the promise to David, that I will establish for you this son and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's unique because no earthly king can have a kingdom that reigns forever. 
Eventually, earthly kings die, but there's one king who does not die. He is the king who is not subjected to death, but in every way has overcome death, and who sits seated on the right hand of God, and he reigns forever at the right hand of the Father. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And then we have the last qualifying statement. So not only have we seen that this child will be great, that this child will be the son of the Most High, he will occupy the throne of David. But then lastly, we get to see that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, I'm going to distinguish between the throne of David and the one who's to rule over Jacob. Because the the throne of David is uniquely an Israelite promise. It is a promise to the Israelite people that they will be the ones who will have a king, the king that God establishes in the Davidic line. The ruler over Jacob, well, Paul expounds Jacob, as we understand, that not all who are of Israel are Israel, but it is really through Jacob, the promised child, the, the favored child, the elect child, that this kingdom is going to advance. And Paul, in Romans chapter 9, contrasts Jacob and Esau, the child of favor, and the child who is not favored. And so here, we have the one who will be the ruler over Jacob, the ruler over all the chosen people of God. And remember, Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, and he is advancing and expounding the kingdom of God, not only to be an Israelite kingdom, but for all people who would fall under that qualification. Because Jacob is not uniquely just an Israelite name. All the children of Jacob, all the offspring of Jacob, are children of the promise. He will be the ruler over Jacob. That is Yahweh who reigns and Jesus who reigns. And ultimately, if Yahweh is the one who is to reign over Jacob, and Jesus is declared here to be the one who reigns over Jacob, then Jesus is being declared at this moment to be God. If you'll turn with me to Micah chapter 4, we're going to see where it says that. Micah chapter 4, it's an old, uh, or it's it's a minor prophet in the Old Testament, so I'll give you a moment to get there. So if you go Hosea, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Micah chapter 4, and we're going to be in verse 7 of that chapter. And he says, I'm going to start here in verse 6, in that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So in verse 7, we see that the Lord is the one who's going to reign over this remnant people, the people of Jacob. And so if the Lord, and that's Lord capital L, lowercase, but then capitalized O-R-D. That is the substitute in our English Bible for the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So it is Yahweh who is to reign over the house of Jacob, over this remnant that he's preserved. And here in the prophecy, we have Jesus being declared to be the one who will rule over the house of Jacob. If it is only Yahweh who can rule over this house, and Jesus is the one who's going to rule over this house, then we declare that Jesus and God are one. They are of one nature. Jesus is God. If Yahweh rules over Jacob and Jesus rules over Jacob, then Jesus is Yahweh. He is the ruler over all. In Daniel chapter 7, we get the prophecy of the Son of Man, and a similar thing is said, that the Son of Man will rule and reign over the house of Jacob. And this Jesus is to be that Son of Man who will reign. 
God is not going to divide his rule. In fact, he's going to rule himself over his people. And so we see that this promised child is great. He is the son of the Most High. He is of the throne of David. And he is the one who's going to be the ruler over Jacob. And so what are we then left to declare about this promised child? That he for us is that Savior. That there is no name under heaven by which men must be saved except through the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4. He is the Savior. He's great. He's God. He is the Son of the Most High. He is the one who's going to be in the throne of David, and he is the one who's going to rule over Jacob. So he is for us, by extent, that Savior. The one who's going to ultimately rule and reign over his people who will come in the end of days. The bride that will be prepared for him, as Revelation says. So we have here in the first real section of this text, the promised child. And then next, we're going to get to see the promise, not only of the child, but the virgin birth. The virgin birth. That's really the second main movement in this text, and it's extremely important that we understand the virgin birth rightly. So if you look with me back in the text, in verse 34, after this amazing promise of the child is declared, Mary says, and it's, Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, if you remember Zechariah, he has a similar response. He says, well, how will I know this? And there's debate back and forth about whether Mary and Zechariah respond, respond in the same way. I will submit to you that her question is more of a question, less of doubting God, but more of a how is this actually going to work question. But she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And we can all understand why that might be a question because the angel has just told her she will bear a child, but she's a virgin. So there's a disconnect here, at least as far as man can understand. And then in verse 35, the angel is going to respond to her and he's going to say, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So in the back and forth here with Mary's response and the angel's response back, we have the understanding of what we would later call the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That not only does Mary question this on the basis that she is a virgin, but the angel will respond to her and tell her exactly how this virgin conception is to be understood. That the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and this is how you will conceive. Mary never had relations with a man in order to conceive Jesus. Later, those who would seek to deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ would, on the basis of her marital infidelity to Joseph, try to subvert the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. And they would submit that he was born out of wedlock, but this child was then redeemed by God. That was an early church heresy. That was an early church heresy that has made its rounds over and over again, and even today, where you have the Washington Post writing articles about the fact that some texts of Scripture deny the virgin birth. Really, the big text where this centers around is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7, this is one of the crucial prophecies in understanding the virgin birth. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And it really is a, a question not only of one verse, but really it all comes down to one word. 
And this is a big deal, by the way, because some translations of Scripture will translate this word virgin, and some will translate it to be maiden or young woman. So in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, you have this text, that therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, that name Emmanuel, as a Christian, you should remember that name from Isaiah chapter 9, where it says that this child will be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. And that Jesus, when he is born, he is called Emmanuel, the God child. Emmanuel, L is the Jewish name for God. And Emmanuel, which means God with us, or he's with us, God. So this is the child who is prophesied. It says, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now you might be wondering why I'm going to belabor this point, because the virgin birth is the very foundation on which the doctrine of Christ stands or falls. Because there's a lot of implications, and if you can get around the virgin birth, and there's a lot of ways in which you can misunderstand who Jesus was if you subvert this point. The nature of this question comes down to a Hebrew word, which is Alma. That word in Hebrew is as close of a term as you can get to referring to a virgin. Now, admittedly, in Hebrew, it doesn't have to explicitly refer to virgin. It can just refer to any young woman. But as the Septuagint would translate it, they would use the Greek word parthenos in this text where it says Alma. And the Greek word parthenos explicitly refers to one who has had no sexual relations, either male or female. And so in the Greek, when it refers to here, instead of Alma, it says Parthenos. And Matthew, in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 23, will say Parthenos when he quotes this text out of Isaiah. And so Matthew understood this conception to only be of a virgin. And Isaiah, when he initially wrote this, used the Hebrew word that he had access to that was as close as possible as you could get to saying virgin. And in that context, it would have been understood. So not only was the virgin birth prophesied here in Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, but the virgin birth is predicted even earlier in Scripture. How early, you might ask? If you go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the child who is declared to crush Satan is declared by God to be the seed of the woman. Now that's interesting because women don't have seed. You can have the seed of man who follows down the lineage, But the seed of woman is a unique expression, which refers to the fact that the woman will be the one who bears this child, that there will be no man involved in this conception. It's the seed of the woman who's going to crush Satan one day. There will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the devil. And so here you have the earliest prediction of this virgin birth by God himself when he curses Satan and says that one day the seed of the woman will come and crush you. So the virgin birth is an essential truth of Christianity. The Jewish rabbis would write things like that the Messiah would have no earthly father. This was before Jesus came. This was the rabbis who were expecting Jesus to come. But then again, they see Jesus and they deny that he was who he said he was. And the the denial of the virgin birth doesn't even wait till the first century church to start. In fact, if you will turn with me to John chapter 8, If you're on the M. Shane plan, you would have just read this, John chapter 8. We're going to have an account of where the Pharisees accuse Jesus and question 
his birth circumstances on the basis of the fact that he was actually not conceived of a virgin, but that he was born under immoral circumstances. Now, the early way in which this would have gone and the early way that this heresy has manifested itself was that Nazareth, being off of the main Roman highway, that Mary, during her betrothal period, actually had relations with a Roman soldier under conspicuous circumstances, and that Joseph found out about this and uh, had the child adopted under his family anyway. And that all of this other stuff was really invented by the early church apostles to kind of cover up for Jesus. And you might be wondering how you get there. Well, if you look at John chapter 8, Jesus has just performed uh, some, he's, he's had a nice back and forth conversation with the Pharisees, as he usually does. And they say to him, in verse 41 of chapter 8, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And so in this theological back and forth, the first thing in which they attack Jesus is they attack him based on his father. They say, we were not born of sexual immorality, which implies that he was born of sexual immorality. That is relationships outside of marriage. So they believe that Jesus, who everyone in the community would have known because relationships were open and public at that time, that Mary was pregnant before her and Joseph were married. And so there must have been a lot of back and forth in the community about this, trying to explain these circumstances. And the Pharisees understand Jesus to be born out of sexual immorality, which means a relationship before marriage. And later in verse 48 of the same section, if that one's too vague for you, verse 48, the Jews answer back to him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now you have to ask yourself the question, what is a Samaritan? A Samaritan is a Jew and a Gentile offspring. It is the offspring of the relationship between a Jewish person and a Gentile. And so if his mother Mary was a Jew, they're here implying that his father was a Gentile. And so here you have the initial denial of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ as early as the Pharisees. Because you see, they understand that to concede the virgin birth point is to concede the Messiah point. They know the scriptures. They know what they predict. And so when Jesus comes around and does these works and teaches these things, they have to deny his virginity or his virgin birth through his mother. And so here you have them questioning the virgin birth because they understand that this is a foundational doctrine of the Messiah. In Isaiah 43, verse 3, we see that the child will be called holy. And here, in our text today in Luke, we see that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Now, this is to be contrasted with the fact that David, when he writes Psalm 51, verse 5, he says that he was brought forth in iniquity referring to his original sin nature that was always present in him. But this child does not have an original sin nature. This child will be called holy, which is interesting. Because to be referred to as holy is to be one to be referred to without sin, separate from sin. So how can this child be called holy if he is the offspring of a human man? 
Now, this is not a, a question of DNA. Sin doesn't exist in any part of the DNA code. If that was the case, Mary could have just as easily passed on the sin nature. This is a question of headship and authority. If God is his father and he has no human father, then he is not subject to the depravity of Adam because Adam doesn't stand in as his federal head, as Adam does for you and me. Adam, our first father, sinned and fell. And Jesus comes as the second Adam, not born under the sin nature of Adam, not born under his depravity, but born of God to create for us a new opportunity and a new grace option. Because those who are born under Adam have an original sin nature that bends them towards sin. And Jesus does not possess this original sin nature, which is why he can be called holy. So this is the virgin birth and this is an essential teaching because to understand Jesus as holy is to understand Jesus as being not only without sin, but not capable of sinning in his divine nature, being both divine and human, and, being, and having never sinned. Because when he stands on the cross, the question of has he ever sinned really becomes an important one. Because if he had sinned, then he can't really be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So either he was holy or he wasn't holy. And the central question of his holiness centers on his parent. Is his parent a human and an earthly father or is his parent God? Now the virgin birth theology is sometimes even by today's theologian questioned. And they say that it is a pagan theology. In fact, if you read any uh, Greek mythology, you'll understand that people such as Perseus and Hephaestus and even the ruler Alexander the Great were to be understood as to be conceived through an immaculate or a virgin conception. Even uh, going as far as Ra, the Egyptian god, was to be believed as being conceived uh, of a virgin, meaning that there was no sexual relationship with his mother before he was born. And so really people are saying that the early church fathers started borrowing from Greek mythology to understand who Jesus was. But I will submit to you, as the early church father Justin Martyr submitted, that the devil was seeking to sow confusion, knowing the prophecies of the virgin birth, and he seeks to sow confusion through many pagan religions and speak of many virgin births and many virgin conceptions, so that by the time Jesus comes, people can begin to question on the basis of Greek mythology whether this virgin birth was borrowed or whether this virgin birth was actual. But who would these pagans have known about a God who could create life out of a barren womb except for the God of the Bible who does it through Abraham and Sarah and through Hannah. So they're even borrowing from the Jewish teaching in that case. So yet again, God still wins the day. But I will submit to you a few reasons why you ought to believe in the virgin birth, reasons to believe in the virgin birth. The first and foremost reason why you should believe in the virgin birth, and this really is the only reason you would need, is that it is predicted in scripture according to Genesis, according to Isaiah, and according to a lot of other Old Testament prophecies that we did not look at tonight, the virgin birth is predicted in Scripture to come true. The child is to be holy. The child is to be the Son of God. In Psalm chapter 2, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is to be understood as Jesus is going to be born of his father, Yahweh. And so he could not have had an earthly father. The second reason why you ought to believe in the virgin birth is its implications in both the incarnation and original sin nature of Jesus. 
did Jesus have an original sin nature? Well, if you would say yes, then you would have to first deny the virgin birth. But if he did not have a sin sin nature, he could actually stand in as our place and be the atonement for the wrath of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we know that all men are born as children of wrath from their beginning because they follow in Adam's line. So Jesus must have been without original sin if he was to be our substitute to satisfy God's wrath. And the third reason why we ought to believe in the virgin birth is as the angel here tells Mary that, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was once called barren. Verse 37, For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible for God. And so you can trust in the virgin birth because God is actually in the habit and in the pattern of creating life out of dead wombs and even life out of wombs that would never have had the possibility of conceiving because they have never had sexual relations. God is in the habit of breaking the natural pattern for his miraculous purpose whenever he so desires. And although there has never been up to this point in history a virgin birth and there never will be again, we are to trust in the virgin birth on the basis of God's previous actions, that he is well capable of doing this and this is going to be the pinnacle of his miraculous works. That nothing will be impossible with God as Genesis eighteen fourteen says that Sarah laughs and has joy because God says that, what is, is this thing too hard for God to do? That is the negative of the statement that nothing will be impossible with God. And so here we have not only the promised child and secondly, the virgin birth, but then lastly and finally, we have Mary's response to these events. She says in verse 38, in response to the angel consoling her, she says in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary's response is a response of humility and a response of faith. This is to be contrasted with Zechariah who responds, not in faith, and is silenced and deafened for his lack of faith response. Mary responds and says these words, I am the servant of the Lord. Her response mirrors David's response after he hears the promise of the Davidic line in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David rejoices in the Lord and says, let it be according to your word. And Mary responds in much the same way. In Psalm 116, verse 16, it says, O Lord, I am your servant, so writes the psalmist. And so Mary is taking in pattern with Old Testament saints and saying right alongside them that I am the servant of God. Mary is not to be worshipped. She is a servant of God. She is a servant of the one who is to be worshipped. Some people would refer to this, uh, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. And then that following statement, Let it be to me according to your word. They would say that this is a declaration of Mary's cooperation in God's salvation process. That Mary, when she says, Let it be to me according to your word, is similar to God in his creation account in Genesis when he says, Let there be light. They would call this Mary's fiat, Mary's statement. Let it be to me according to your word that she, through this action, is now part and participant in the redemption process. And you get all kinds of interesting doctrines and dogmas from this kind of theology. 
But I would submit to you that in the context of what Mary says, the first thing she says is, I am the servant of the Lord. And the rest of the statement ought to be understood in light of Mary's initial response, which is that she is the servant of the Lord. God, when he in his creation account speaks, he does not say, behold, I am the servant of creation, let there be light. He says, let there be light. No qualifying statement. Mary is simply submitting to the will of God that has already been declared to her. She is not professing anything. She is not declaring anything to be. She is simply saying, let it be to me according to your word, the word you have already spoken through the angel. She is simply, like all good and faithful saints, responding by submitting to God's will and saying, Lord, carry it out. This is amazing because there are so many things Mary could have said here. There are so many things. She could have asked another question, which is, how do I know that I'm not going to be stoned to death as soon as I'm found out to be pregnant? How do I know? Because for a Jewish girl in this society, that is a real possibility. That Joseph could respond and under judicial and lawful action have stoned Mary to death for her unfaithfulness. And who's to believe her? Because an angel hasn't showed up ever for the last 400 years and let alone outside of the temple in Nazareth? But she, she's not questioning that. She's saying, let it be to me according to your word. She is trusting God with all the details of the plan. She's saying, I'm on board. I'll trust you to figure it out. And that's an amazing response of humility. That is an amazing response of faith. Let it be to me according to your word. This has echoes beforehand of a later statement that Jesus says, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done when he is going to the cross. It is a statement of letting the will of God move forward as it has been declared and entrusting oneself to the Lord. So Mary models it. Her son Jesus later models it when he's on his way to the cross. And I would submit to you that all believers ought to model this response of faith. That when the Lord declares his plan to go out, we are to respond, let it be to us according to your word. This is an accurate response of faith. That although we are creatures who love to control things and we love the details and we want to be those who give counsel to God on how the plan should unfold, we should know that he has a wise and a good God and he, his plan is unfolding perfectly. And so Mary, knowing this, although she has probably a thousand questions, does not question any of those things, but rather she is satisfied to entrust herself to the Lord and to his judgment. This response of humility is amazing because, again, she has every reason not to believe that this is possible. First and foremost, there is no Israelite king on the throne right now. The one who sits on the throne is Herod, who's an Edomite. And not only is there no Israelite king in the throne, but she's not even had a husband yet. She's in her betrothal period. So it's not even possible for her to conceive as far as people know. So she has two reasons already to say, I'm not sure about this. And not only this, but the Israelites are currently under Roman rule. And we're told the Messiah that is to come is to one day be the king of the Jews. So Mary, when the Messiah is announced to her, probably has a lot of questions, which is, how exactly is this going to work out? We're under Roman rule. We've been under rule of foreign nations and powers for the last 400 years, God. And moreover, there's no Davidic line in power right now. In fact, the line of David wasn't even there in the intertestamental period between the last prophecy and now. 
There were other lines and lineages of Jewish people who took the throne and who took the power, such as the Maccabees. And so there's no Davidic line on the throne. All the Davidic line is really impoverished. We have Joseph and Mary. There's really no powerful people left in that line. Not only that, but there's no Jewish king. There's Roman and Gentile rule over the Jewish people. So there's a million reasons for her to question this. She has every reason not to believe. But instead of that, she she does believe. She believes the words that were spoken to her. And this is a question that all of us are going to face in our Christian walk. Are we going to believe the words of the Lord as they've been spoken to us? Or are we going to doubt? Because I'll tell you, there are a lot of reasons on the surface to doubt. You can doubt on the basis of what you know to be true and what you've experienced. You can doubt on the basis of what people who are very smart and who are very scholarly tell you, that there's no such thing as a God, that this earth was created by random chance and cosmic happenings, that really there is no such thing as an inerrant word because this scripture was put together by happenstance and that we can prove to you all the ways in which this is no longer true and no longer trustworthy. There are a million reasons not to believe except for the one reason to believe, which is that God said so. And so you have to ask yourself the question, how are you going to respond to the word of God when it's declared to you? Are you going to believe in the word of God as it is spoken? Even if you can't explain how Jesus stands in your place on the cross, are you going to believe that he actually did that? Even if you don't really think of yourself as that guilty of a sinner, are you going to believe that you are and you need someone to stand in your place? There are a lot of reasons not to believe because the world tells us we're not all that bad. The world tells us a lot of lies about ourselves. And the question is, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the circumstances that you can see? Or are you going to believe the word of God, which is trustworthy in every respect? The word of God is not unreasonable. Faith is not unreasonable. But it does require you to step out and to jump into the faith. Because there are always reasons to doubt. There are always reasons to not believe. And here Mary models for us how to believe against all odds and against all hope of this truth. And we thank God for Mary for the, for the faithful response that she has. Because his salvation promise is moving forward. And we wonder if she responds in the way that Zechariah did, what would he have had to do to her? Would he silence her for her pregnancy? But yet she responds in faith, and so he does not. And so we can thank the Lord for this model response of faith. And I think that Mary is an appropriate saint to look to, to see how she responds and interacts with the Lord here, and hopes against all hope that this is true, that the Messiah really is going to come. And that even if she doesn't understand how or why, that he does and he will come through her. And this is then the the mother of Jesus, the one who will later come, to fulfill all the roles that have been declared to him. He is going to be the one who is great. He is going to be the son of God. He is going to live a perfect life, be called holy. And then he is going to stand in the place on the cross of sinners who are unholy. As the second Samuel chapter seven said, when he sins, I will punish him with the rod of man. And we know that Jesus Christ never sins, but he bears our sin upon himself and he does suffer the just punishment. When he stands with sin on him, he bears the sin of us on himself. God justly judges that sin in him. And he experienced that crushing blow in every single ounce of the wrath of God. And he stands there for you 
and for me. And this child who is called holy stands in your and my place. And not only does he stand in our place, but he allows us to then clothe ourselves in his righteousness, and he puts that upon us. And we can believe, even if we can't understand, that this is true, and this is trustworthy, and this is right. What a great thing to worship in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for uh, the angel showing up to Mary, for the the child who was promised, who was uh, conceived, and who was later born, and all that he was coming to do and all that he exemplified in redemptive history. Lord, we thank you for your powerful movements through your spirit. And Lord, we, th- we praise you most of all for through this child creating a way for us to actually be in your kingdom, to be adopted sons and daughters. Because you sent your son to pave the way for us. That we could clothe ourselves in his righteousness by faith and respond through the offer of salvation. And Lord, I pray that we would remember and reflect on these truths that Jesus came into this world sinless and perfect. And that was essential for the work that was to come. And so Lord, I pray that we would reflect on these truths, we would meditate on these truths, and we would, as we go throughout our week, be able to respond in faith to these truths as well. And Lord, I pray this in your name. Amen.